Welcome back to the Cardinals Off Day and now the Cardinals Off Season Podcast. It's been a few weeks since we last joined you. Uh, ben, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Mr. Godar. Uh, it is good to hear your voice uh, once again, um, especially uh, given all of the events that have occurred since we last recorded and are currently going on uh, with the general manager meetings out in California. Yes, absolutely. And we're going to get to all those Cardinals events soon and, and some uh, some roster moves and some acquisitions. But uh, up top, I want to congratulate you because you had a uh, uh, an acquisition in uh, in your family since we last recorded and uh, and uh, added one to the roster in your family. So uh, congratulations on that uh, to to both you and uh, and to your wife. Oh, thank you. Uh, we have baby Miles with us now, and um, he was born uh, the day before Ali Marmal was announced as the manager. Uh, to put this in a Cardinals perspective, um, and my wife. Uh, actually got the joke and found it funny when we were like, oh, we have to record an emergency podcast. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and just so everyone knows, unfortunately, the recording spoiled, and that's why we weren't weren't able to upload that. But uh, Ben and I were in the hospital uh, recording that, so... Uh, <laughs> yes, they broke COVID protocols. They said it was fine given the circumstances. Uh, yeah, everyone and, understood. Yeah. You know, the only problem was uh, the hospital Wi-Fi uh, with Zencaster. And, and yeah. that is why we were unable to post it online. Yeah. Yeah. So we do apologize to our, our listeners that we weren't able to get that out. But uh, but again, congratulations to you, Ben. And uh uh, yeah, so we, the, I think the last time we joined folks was sort of an emergency pod right after the, the firing of Mike Schilt. So the, the Ali Marmol hire, uh, Ali Marmol hire, that was a bit of a tongue twister there I wasn't quite prepared for. I'm, I'm still in uh, off-season uh, podcasting mode here, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, we have some, uh, some roster moves, some non-tenders, uh, most expected a few surprises. We've got some um, uh, off-season, um, a, a couple very small moves already happening, but a lot of talk about some targets and things. So uh, we've got a lot to, to dive into today. Uh, so Ben, should we just kick things off right away and, and, and talk, uh, uh, again, since we last spoke, the Ali Marmol hire has become official. What, what were your thoughts on that? Well, I think you were very early on uh, basically calling that higher a slam dunk. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and I do not wager on sports, but when Vegas placed or released the odds on who the Cardinals were high would hire and, uh, Marmol was, I believe third or fourth, just in terms of, you know, the odds. Uh, I even texted my little brother who does gamble. And I was like, I would put, a fair amount of money on Marmol at, at those odds, because yeah. um, I, the more I thought about it, uh, the more I came around to your line of thinking and the formalization of the hire uh, with the announcement to the press after a pretty short hiring process where no external candidate names leaked. (laughs) (laughs) It it was uh, pretty clear what was going to be happening. 
It, and it's it, you know, and and the Cardinals, of course, are are very good at not leaking things, but it's even easier not to leak names when there are none. So. <laughs> yes, I've, you did get the distinct impression that perhaps there was one interview, maybe two. Um, yeah, and uh, Skip Schumacher got some play and and was an interesting name, uh, but if you're John Mosellock. Uh, you have to feel kind of like the cat who ate the canary because the three names that St. Louis media were throwing around as the potential manager, you hired one as the manager and the other two are on staff uh, as coaches. And so, you know, you kind of have the best of all worlds in that respect uh, because you've brought everyone on board and uh, are have revamped, the coaching staff uh, a little bit with a promotion and then bringing uh, Schumacher in. And so, you know, and I think that's true, Ben, but you know, I also think that, you know, if you watch this team, I mean, I I think the Cardinals are really pretty straightforward about how they do business in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, and I saw people and some of it are just, you know, some of them are just, fans and folks on Twitter and, you know, granted there, you know, people can dream and people can have their ideas, but, but some of them were, you know, sort of media folks too. And, you know, people, you'd see people, you know, float names like Tito Francona and things like that. And I just think like, have you watched this organization? Like, that's not the kind of thing that they do. Um, So, you know, I, I think just even if you followed the Cardinals and you understood the way they operate, I mean, and again, and I said this early on, Marmol just seemed to me, hands down, the obvious choice they were going to make. And really, Schumacher and uh, 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 Stubby Clapp were the only other two that I thought even just seemed kind of in the realm of possibility. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, one of the names that was also bandied about was Matt Holliday. Yeah, um, yeah, and he's probably probably a, you know, a, a fraction of a percentage of an odd, you know, as well. Yes. And, and when I saw that, you know, my first thought was, you know, everything about what has happened suggests that John Mosellock learned a lot from Mike Matheny. Uh, probably not about baseball, uh, but about how not to hire and work with a manager or what are the red flags when you're working with a manager. Yeah. Um, and Matt Holiday just seems so much to me, uh, former player, well-respected, uh, but doesn't have that experience. Um, and he just seemed to be very similar to Matheny in the ways that you don't necessarily want a, a first-time manager to be similar. Uh, and so that wasn't surprising at all. Uh, what did kind of surprise me was uh, the athletic reporting that Holiday turned down an invitation to be on the coaching staff. Um, and the report, uh, you know, what, what didn't surprise me about it is that he turned down the invitation because he wanted to be with his uh, family uh, and his sons uh, for the coming baseball season. Um, but what, what did surprise me was the fact that they didn't really name what coaching spot they offered him. And it made me think it might have been the assistant hitting coach job that they had floated Ryan Ludwig potentially to fill 
and they had talked about wanting to have a former major leaguer in that position. Um, and so I, I found all of that kind of interesting uh, that Holiday somehow got floated in the managerial search. Uh, and, and maybe he would have been more open to joining the Cardinals if he were the manager as opposed to an assistant hitting coach. Um, but I, I thought that was kind of interesting that uh, they got that far with him, uh, and then you know he he turned down the invitation, and the Cardinals are still working on filling out that coaching staff as we record here today. Well, and I feel like there's maybe a little bit of a shift going on, and just in terms of what they value on the coaching staff, in terms of are they looking for really specific uh, skill sets in a specific area? Or are they looking for kind of legacy Cardinal guys, you know? And I mean, I think it's notable that Chris Carpenter left the organization, you know, this off season as well. And, um, you know, obviously you've still got Jose Oquindo is still, you know, to, you know, to a degree involved. Willie McGee is still involved. Um, but I feel like there's been a little bit of a move away from having some of those kind of legacy guys, um, you know, in there, there's still some of those guys around. And of course, you know, some of those guys can do both. There can be guys who are, you know, familiar, beloved faces from the past who are also, um, you know, really savvy guys. And so Willie, for example, all reports you hear on him, it sounds, you know, he's really involved in the outfield positioning and everything. Sounds like he's a guy who's really plugged into what they're doing now and just really kind of involved and everything about how things operate now. But I think, you know, there was a time where, you know, certain guys could kind of just, you know, you know, be around because they look good in the uniform. And uh, it feels like maybe they're moving away from that a little bit. At least I, I get that impression. Yeah, it's it seems that way. Um, and it also seems like they are really focused on communication yeah. Um, you know, Schumacher, f- for fans who remember, was always a very good interview uh, when he was on the post game um, or was quoted in print. He was very thoughtful, uh, very forthright. And he wasn't one of those guys, you know, and, and we all know those guys when we come across them in a post game where you're like, man, it's a good thing this guy can hit a baseball because he's an idiot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Schumacher is certainly not that, um, he, he struck me as being a very good communicator. The fact that he was a coach with the Dodgers, then climbed the ladder, uh, with the Padres, I think supports that, uh, viewpoint as well. And then, and then the assessment from St. Louis media types who have greater interaction with him, uh, than you or me or many fans at home. I think reinforces that, uh, and Marmol has has that reputation as well. Um, and I would say, you know, Matt Holiday and the Cats vignettes on uh, what was once known as Fox Sports Midwest uh, were fun and funny. Uh, but one of the things that I always thought about Holiday is that he seemed like a thoughtful guy um, who was also well spoken. Uh, and and knew what he was trying to say and and then said it uh, and so it's it's interesting to see them kind of 
targeting guys who I think have not only had major league success uh, to a degree, you know, Schumacher less than Holiday, obviously, but also uh, were very skilled at uh, communicating with the media during their time here. And I think that that skill set probably translates uh, when you're talking with the front office about, say, analytics or positioning or using piggyback starters or what have you, or you're talking about uh, those same things with the players or the media uh, to get buy-in from the players or explain to the media why you did what you did. Yeah. And so it seems to me that the Cardinals are put a premium are putting a premium on communication skills, uh, which again, after the Matheny area era, uh, I think we can all appreciate. Well, and the other thing the Skip Schumacher hiring says to me is, uh, Ali Marmol, watch your ass, because um, they've made it pretty clear that the uh, the bench coach is the understudy to the manager. And uh, in that uh, Ali Marmol press conference, uh, you know, w- when pressed, uh, you know, Mo divulged, you know, tiny, tiny bits more about his decision making process in moving on from Shell. And one of the things that he sort of allowed was basically the fact that having Marmol in that position maybe was a small factor in moving on from Schilt. In other words, you know, didn't like how things were going with Schilt and the fact that Marmol was there and they felt comfortable with Marmol and basically felt, we think he's going to be, do a better job, you know, kind of greased the wheels there. Um, you know, Schumacher is a guy who's been in a bench coach uh, role, although they called him what associate manager. I think I, I was getting ready. I was getting ready to correct you. Uh, yes. in, the, in the age of job title inflation with Major League Baseball, uh, associate manager uh, is apparently the new bench coach. Right. So uh, he's he's been in the associate manager role, and uh, uh, you know, so he's been in a similar position. He, he, um, you know, had actually. Uh, probably a little more uh, even um, major league coaching experience than uh, uh, than Marmol has had. And of course, has quite a bit more uh, experience in history with the St. Louis Cardinals um, at the major league level than than Marmol has. So, um, you know, so he's a pretty formidable guy to have kind of waiting in the wings there. So um, now that said, I, I believe that they are committed to Marmol. And I think that, you know, they, I think that they do believe in Marmol, but, you know, that said, I think everything that we've seen over the last few years, um, you know, uh, if, if things aren't going the way that they want them to go, I don't think they're going to wait too long to, to make a move. And especially with someone that they feel as comfortable with uh, as uh, they certainly do with Skip Schumacher. Oh, yes. I, I think very clearly uh, the Cardinals have recognized, and we talked about this on the last episode, there are only 30 of these jobs, and we don't need to be limited yep. uh, to guys who have had this job before uh, yep. when looking for a new manager. And so I think that uh, they have gone through the process now uh, twice since Larusa left, and I think that Mosellock through that process and looking around across Major League Baseball as well has identified the characteristics that he wants in order to be successful or what he feels are necessary to be successful and for the Cardinals to be successful. 
and he's not going to be shy about making a change now. And in a way that is refreshing, um, because I think everyone agrees they tried to prop up Matheny for way too long and waited way too long to fire him. They should have fired him long before they did. He was a terrible manager. Um, and he lost the clubhouse. He was terrible in games. You know, I, I, to this day, I would love to know if they just talked about the same thing every year when they did their post or after the season wrap up meeting, like, Hey Mike, you need to work on this. (laughs) Right. Like was it the same thing every year for you know his entire? I'd like to see how the hand, the handout got dumbed down year to year and like simplified and simplified. Like this year, just symbols. Let's just take the words off of it. It's just going to be pictures. Um, yeah, well, and, I, and you get the picture. The, I have the sense anyway that you know that was part of that transition time. We've kind of talked about this. Of, you know, the manager used to be this real significant kind of figurehead position within a major league organization. And I mean, you know, this is a, a team that was coming from Tony La Russa in that position, you know, who was, you know, one of the, the you know, largest uh, of those type figures. And so I think maybe organizationally, they still kind of, you know, imbued that position with some of that gravitas. And I think now they they recognize it for what it is. And I think most other organizations do. And we've said it before, it's it's kind of a middle management type position. And, and you've put it really well. There's only 30 of these positions. So, you know, when to move on from a Mike Schilt, you know, it doesn't have to be some, you know, grand uh, thing that Mike Schilt, you know, did wrong. It just merely needs to be we think somebody else can do this better and we're going to, you know, give that, give that person a shot. And um, so uh, anyway, um, anything else on the, the management situation or shall we, uh, shall we move on to some of the, the roster moves that have happened? Well, one of the things uh, about Marmol's press conference that I thought was really interesting uh, is that he's a Cardinals off day podcast listener and subscriber. No, I'm, I'm joking. Um, uh, but, uh, he definitely, uh, had or caught my attention, uh, when he started talking about, you know, how they might structure the lineup. And it seemed to me very clearly he was talking about Tommy Edmond when he was like, well, there might be some days where you bat lead off and some days where you bat eight. (laughs) Right. And, and when he said we, when he said we will platoon, and there's really only one place that they would obviously platoon, which is yes. also Tom Edmund. <laughs> yes, it's and and it's something that it's a dead horse that I have been kicking over and over again, and so I apologize to listeners, but you know Tommy Edmund should probably not ever play uh, much if he's not batting right-handed against a left-handed pitcher, uh, even though he won the Gold Glove his hitting is so bad from the other side of the plate that even if he's a gold glove winner, you really can't, it's hard to justify playing him. And so uh, he, he certainly made my ears perk up when he said that um, because I think he very clearly understands the flexibility that you have to have in the game today, especially with the ungodly breaking stuff that pitchers are coming to the ballpark with and, and not just starters. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, you're going to face four righties a night with a wipeout slider that would make John Smoltz blush. 
you know, I mean, maybe not. Schmoltz seems incapable of recognizing that today's players are better than him uh, in every way. But um, maybe not every way, but in many ways. And so it's um, it's one of those things where you have to get every advantage you can because the pitching is just so much better than it once was. And, you know, the idea that you have an everyday guy and this is your guy and he's going to, you know, play every game regardless of who's starting for the other side or who comes in as a reliever, you know, you can't really do that. And it seemed like that was something that Matheny did. And it seemed like something that Schilt liked to do as well. And so when Marmol in that press conference basically came out and proactively said, you know, we're going to look for advantages based on an array of, of data, including the types of pitches the pitcher's throwing and how our batters perform against those specific types of pitches, you know, whether it's a, a, a more of a vertical breaking ball or more of a horizontal break to the breaking ball. And we're going to try to structure our lineup to get every advantage out of it based on this information that we have. To me, that suggested uh, that the Cardinals front office wanted to do that. And perhaps Mike Schilt was not as enthusiastic about it as the front office was and as Marmol now is. And so uh, that dynamic was very interesting. Um, and the other was, uh, you know, throughout this process, ownership talking about how the front office has all of this data and they're able to identify advantages and ways to make the team more competitive on the field. And it's up to the manager to take that information and get buy-in and implement it. And, you know, there's been a lot of hand-wringing about you know, is Marmol a sock puppet of the front office and all this? And and you mentioned Tony Larusa, and you know, I, I think we've all heard or read about Larusa and Duncan having index cards with statistics about their players and the opposition. You know, that is that that was when they were in Chicago with the White Sox. Uh, you know, forty years ago. That is how much the game has changed. You know, the manager used to have a binder and, and do his research. Now they have StatCast. They have all of this data, just reams and reams of data. And they have teams breaking down the data and, and finding advantages in it and taking the information uh, that they have and providing it to the field manager, the coaching staff, and the players. And it's just so different in today's communication environment from back when, you know, the manager and the major league roster hopped on an airplane and flew to Cleveland and the general manager was in the office and the general manager watched the game on television or listened to the game on the radio, like the fans, like in this day and age, there's so much more information. It's so much easier to communicate the dynamic has fundamentally changed because of that. And uh, I think John Moselock has recognized that the teams that have uh, been at the forefront of recognizing the shift in that dynamic and what it means for the manager job 
those teams have experienced a lot of success. And I'm talking yeah. about the Tampas, the San Francisco's, the Los Angeles's, um, yeah. the Washington Nationals, I believe, have done that as well. Um, and before they broke everything down and had a fire sale last uh, last summer, they they were a very formidable franchise as well. And so, you know, hearing Marmol talk about we're going to look for advantages everywhere we can and then attempt to leverage them, to me, uh, was just a very small example of how that job is going to work uh, with Marmol at uh, holding it and with the front office sharing information. And I, I, my ears really perked up with that. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, like yeah. in the month of April, how many different lineups are we going to have? Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is just an ongoing evolution in baseball. I mean, you go back to the earliest days of the game and you had an owner and you had players and, you know, one of those players served as sort of a de facto manager, but they were basically just a, a captain, more or less, you know. And then that continued for a long time, and you had you had player managers. And then at a certain point, certain, some teams started naming an actual, like, manager, you know, would kind of come in, right? And then, you know, but you still had player managers for a long time. But, uh, but you know, and then eventually, you know, most every team had a, had a, had a manager, but then typically that was all you had was you had the manager and you had the owner. Uh, and, and uh, you know, if the, the manager wanted more players or different players or a trade, he went and knocked on the owner's door and said, hey, you know, let's make a trade. Let's get this. And then, uh, you know, that grew and you started to have this general manager role come in, um, you know, so that was that was kind of another phase of growth there. Right. And, and you know, it, it just, you know, it keeps it keeps growing. And now, of course, uh, those front offices where those general managers are have 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 grown beyond just you know being that kind of you know you know kind of personnel acquisition thing and they're providing that on field um, data and analysis and all of that it, it's just a continuation of this process that's been going on forever and so uh, you know when folks look at it and they they make some of those observations or they say like oh this person's a puppet or this or whatever you're, you're just really locked into a really narrow view of, of a snapshot of how baseball operated for a window of time, but it's been evolving, you know, <laughs> forever. And, and guess what? Just like every other industry, uh, you know, the administration continues to grow and, you know, diversify, et cetera. So um, anyway, I feel like we've been spending quite a bit of time on, on, uh, on the management side of things here, Ben. I feel like we should flip things over and get into some of these roster moves. On the, the non-tender side, I don't know there were a lot of Real surprises here. I know we do want to touch on Nick Plummer in a minute, but before we get into that, any any other moves there you wanted to to hit on? Um, no, you know we we talked about this uh, in the last episode, and and nothing really surprised me. Uh, they also outrighted uh, Justin Williams to AAA, and um, and it seems to me that. You know, Lars Newtbar got the opportunity and started hitting, and he has a, a nice profile as a batter in terms of plate discipline and the ability to make contact. Um, but, you know, he still needs to take that next step and establish himself. But that being said, the organization very clearly feels 
strong about him continuing in that kind of fourth or fifth outfielder role on the bench as, as a left-handed bat and uh, you know, the ability to um, you know, let Nick Plummer not be on the 40 man because of it. And also Burleson and, um, and then I think also uh, perhaps to a lesser degree, but you have another left-handed bat knocking on the door in Nolan Gorman uh, who can make the the lineup more dynamic uh, either at second base or potentially at the DH spot if they change that rule. And so, um, you know, I, I thought that was kind of interesting uh, because it, it seems to me that the Nick Plummer move uh, that you just mentioned, as well as the Williams move, uh, both of those seemed to me to be more of an endorsement of Newtbar and perhaps Gorman than anything else. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, Williams is a minor league free agent now as well. So oh, I admit that. Yep. Yep. So he's kind of out of the system as well. And, and yeah. And, and so for folks who didn't see, so Nick, Nick Plummer, who was the gosh, what was he a 2015, 2016 first round pick of the Cardinals. Yes. Um, 2015. 2015. So he had to be moved onto the forty this uh, this year, um, or they could have potentially lost him in the Rule Five draft. And um, the Cardinals n- didn't put him on the forty man, uh, and uh, he uh, elected minor league free agency. And and so he's just kind of out of the system there. So I, I know I saw a lot of consternation about that. Um, I know our our friend of the pod Kyle Reese was frustrated about that. You know, Plummer has really kind of struggled. Um, throughout his minor league career um, in a lot of ways dealt with injuries, you know, not uh, advanced as quickly as certainly as you would hope a first rounder would, but really had a strong year last year, um, you know, big numbers in double A and then a, a very late season promotion to triple A and big numbers there as well. And I know uh, Kyle was disappointed to see the, the, the organization let Plummer go. And, and he's a much better <laughs> evaluator of guys in the minor league system than I am. So I kind of trust Kyle on this. And, and, and Plummer is definitely one of those guys where, um, you know, my first reaction when I see them get rid of a guy like Nick Plummer is I feel like the Rays are going to pick him up and uh, he's going to win three MVPs. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that said, um, I really do kind of see I see the organization's reasoning for this and it's for a lot of the reasons that you, that you hit on Ben as well. You know, I think he's quite a ways down the the pecking order when you start thinking about a 40 man roster spot and, and you kind of focused on that left-handed bat side of things. Um, but, but I think also just if, if you think about um, just as an outfield spot, we know that he's behind Newt Barr He's behind Juan Yepes. You know, I think we know that for sure. Yepes is pretty clearly going to come up next year. And we know that Yepes is more of a DH type, but he'll probably see a little bit of corner um, play, um, maybe a little bit of infield corner play, but it looks to me like probably some corner outfield, you know, play as well. And he's uh, he's behind Alec Burleson, it seems, as well. So, um, you know, and, and when you think about guys you're going to put on the 40 – um, you know, if they have an outfielder who now new bar, I think, and Yepes have a pretty good chance of breaking camp with the major league team, but 
who, whatever other outfielder you have on that 40 is somebody that you're potentially going to you know bring up when you need them. And if they feel like Alec Burleson is ahead of Nick Plummer there, I just I don't think they're going to move Plummer ahead just for the purposes of kind of prospect hoarding. I just I don't think that's what the Cardinals do. And I just don't think that's really, you know, what an organization can do there. And they're not going to put seven outfielders on their 40 man roster. So, you know, there's just there's just not really a spot for him there. Um, and, and the other thing and I, I mean, I know Plummer's numbers are really great last year, but I, when I look at minor leaguers, the first thing I always look at is their their uh, league age, you know, or their uh, their you know league average age. So Plummer last year was uh, in his age twenty four season. So for Double A, he was exactly at the league average age for that system, and then he moved up to Triple A, and he was two point four years um, under the league average age at Triple A. Okay, now for contact uh, for context, excuse me. Alec, Alec Burleson, who also played at Double A AA and Triple A last year, he was 22. Okay, he was so he was two years younger than league average at Double A, and more than four years younger at Triple A. That's a really big deal. Um, and and just for even more context, uh, Dylan Carlson was 22 last year uh, in the majors. <laughs> so you know, and Dylan Carlson was uh, six years younger than league average when he was in triple A in his triple A season. So, um, you know, it, uh, Plummer, as good as he was last year, as old as he was, I, I know you and I have seen plenty of guys in triple A, you know, guys that get old enough in triple A can start kind of mashing and, and, you know, l- look really good. And they've just, they've kind of age to the level that, you know, I mean, it's, it's why they're quad, you know, they, the guys that become quad a players, that's what happens. They're, you know, they're good enough to hit that pitching, but that, you know, that they don't necessarily have a future beyond that. Maybe that's what the Cardinals felt plumber was turning into, you know, maybe the, some of those are some of the reasons. So I think it's unfortunate that this is where things ended up with him. But just when I look at the, the matrix of what they were looking at, I, I, I can see why it ended up this way, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, I can too. I'm still a little disappointed um, just because uh, Plummer had a unique profile, a very good batting eye. And to see him put it all together this year, you know, I'll be honest, you know, it made me happy because you see someone and struggle the way that he did. And to see him put it together this year, uh, I was hopeful that he might get an opportunity uh, to join the Cardinals and, you know, kind of attain the the ultimate goal of his professional career uh, after overcoming adversity within the St. Louis system. And so I've been following Plummer since he was drafted. I think a lot of folks have. Uh, and so, you know, I am a little disappointed as a fan. Yeah. But if you look at it through the front office, uh lens i i think it's it's understandable why they made the choice that they made yeah and you know one comparison i made on twitter was to rowan wick and um what reminds me of rowan wick and if folks can recall you know wick was drafted as a, a catcher although i think he might have played some outfield too he was a position player anyway and a hitter you know earlier in his career with the cardinals wasn't really it was kind of a power prospect but wasn't really going anywhere with that, but played a few years as a position player in the system, transitioned over to pitching 
and, you know, and started having some success, but, you know, hit that point where he needed to be put on the 40 man roster. And frankly, it was kind of a situation where I think everybody looked at Rowan Wick and saw how he was developing as a pitcher and sort of understood like this guy is tracking like he's going to be a major league pitcher. But he just wasn't quite ready to be put on a 40 man roster at that point in time. It didn't make sense. And so the Cardinals ended up having to let him go. And of course, you know, Wick has has been in the majors. He's, you know, he was on the Cubs, um, you know, been successful there. I, he was gosh, he was somewhere else last year, I think. I'm not quite sure where but you know he's been uh, you know he's a relief guy he's not a you know superstar but he's been a, a valuable major league player i think the cardinals knew that i think everybody knew that but when you're that team that drafts that player those guys that take a long time to develop i do think you you almost get um kind of boxed in a corner at a certain point where you, you almost have to let them go um you know and you're almost in a worse position the team that then signs them as a minor league free agent um they've actually got more latitude than you do at that point. And I, I just, I see some similarities with what I think is, is going to happen here with Plummer. Yeah, I, I, I think you're probably right there. It seems to me that, that a team, uh, maybe even a tanking team is, is a, a location for him where he can, uh, have an opportunity to fully bloom into a major leaguer. Um, because I, I just don't know if the Cardinals are going to be able to give him that opportunity. And so this honestly might be the best thing for his career just because there there is quite an outfield logjam in St. Louis, and it's a logjam of players who are about his age and aren't going anywhere for you know four, five, six, seven years, as the case may be. And yeah. so... Um, now that that well, is based but, on but the, and it's not it's not even guys that are his age though it's guys that are young I mean I mean oh yeah Newbar New Burleson Carlson are all younger than he is so you know that's I mean that that you know what I mean that's that's kind of a strike against him too yes so um so anyway um uh shall we move on to talking about some of the the off-season targets the team might be looking at here. Um, we don't have a whole lot uh, of actual action here, um, aside from um, the uh, the re-signing uh, that the team did of a uh, of a t- uh, oh god, what's his name? T.J. Uh, why am I blanking on his uh, McFarland? T.J. McFarland. Gosh, I just. Uh, brain fart there, but the team did sign resign TJ McFarland. I know that Cardinals off day listeners are wondering. I as a uh, you know my religion is don't pay for relief pitching. We did learn that the deal was a one year and I think about two point five million dollars. That does qualify as not paying for relief pitching. So so this this does get my seal of approval of not paying for relief pitching. So I think that's the only. Um, actual move other than of course the the Wayno and Yachty um, you know moves which you know happened kind of earlier um, so aside from that um, we just kind of have some some speculation I know Ben you kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the rotation and we can start there it seems like that's where there's been the most smoke so far um, what do you think uh, it it has intrigued me to see the information that has come out of the GM meetings 
And I believe it was Derek Gould who reported uh, multiple sources uh, told him that the Cardinals have been aggressive uh, with the agents of starting pitchers, and they've cast a wide net. And uh, that includes the top of the market, the middle of the market, and kind of, you know, maybe some bounce back, scrap heap, Dave Duncan reclamation project type pitchers as well. Um, and Gould uh, also put out a tweet about how the Cardinals saw kind of the depth chart of starters. And what I found interesting, you know, Flaherty was one, Wainwright was two, and then for three, Gould put free agent. Then, uh, you know, there's, we, we round out the, the shoe ins for the rotation. And then he listed Woodford as the sixth starter and free agent as seventh to kind of, I think, illustrate to folks what the front office's mindset is as they approach it. And uh, free agency in the offseason, maybe a trade as well. And, and I thought, honestly, that that uh, seemed like a pretty uh, good outlook for the team um, and a good approach for the front office. Uh, I don't know. How do you feel about kind of looking to fill holes with that type of pitcher, um, just keeping it sort of as a, as a broad outline of, of what, how the team is approaching uh, adding starting pitching? Well, I, I hadn't seen that specific uh, listing that you're mentioning there, but uh, I like that a lot because I, I feel like that's exactly the framework they should be looking at. And there, there's a couple elements of that that intrigue me. And number one is I, I'm glad to hear that they are potentially looking at something like what we might call a number three pitcher because I, I would like to see them um, – you know, last year, obviously, at the trade deadline, they needed to add pitching. And, um, you know, they added three pitchers, which I think we would, you know, call about a number eight, a number nine, and a number 11 pitcher um, <laughs> that they had, um, who, you know, performed quite well. And, you know, they obviously made the playoffs. But, um, you know, uh, I would love to see them add a, a you know, a, a better piece. And so something like a number three pitcher, I think, would be great. But the idea of adding something like a number seven pitcher, um, that was one of the specific things that always kind of frustrated me a little bit about um, Schilt, I think specifically, um, but just um, to some, I guess, through Schilt, kind of the way the organization seemed to be operating, which seemed to still be in this kind of old fashioned mindset of we've got five guys, you know, who are going to go out there and, and be our rotation. And again, it's just, it's not the way that it's done anymore. It's not the way that the good teams do it anymore. And I think those of us who watch the playoffs, you know, I mean, if you watched the, uh, you know, the league championship series and the world series, none of those teams operated that way. And so, um, you know, for them to recognize, yeah, we don't need five starting pitchers. You know, we, we need, you know, seven, eight and, and beyond, um, I like that. So I'm, I'm kind of excited by that. Yeah, I, I it looked like a, a pretty good prioritization to me. Um, and it, it could, it's difficult to say if it's exactly how the front office is viewing things. 
you know, Adam Wainwright had a very good season. The team right. would not have made the postseason without him. I think he's, you know, very clearly the MVP of the 2021 St. Louis Cardinals because if they did not have him in the rotation, even when they hit rock bottom, you know, I don't know what that team would have done. Now, you know, that being said, he had a, a, a really great season run suppression wise that frankly, I don't know if his peripherals, well, I know that his peripherals don't support it. I, you know, he's, yeah. he's over half a run lower in ERA than his fielding independent stats, which, you know, for folks who aren't that familiar with them, uh, you know, you know how earned run average is calculated maybe. Um, but it, it is a more of an indirect reflection of how a pitcher pitches because it's based on runs and only runs that are deemed earned based on decisions by the official score. So, you know, the quality of the pitcher's defense is baked into ERA and the decisions of the official scorekeeper are also baked into ERA. And so is batted ball luck. You know, you, you look at, uh, you know, if, if a pitcher gives up a 65 mile per hour, uh, you know, dying quail uh, with, uh, you know, a runner on second and gives up a run, you know, that they may have pitched really well to that batter, but the run still shows up in the stats. The fielding independent stats take into account strikeouts, uh, walks, and home runs allowed, which are three things that pitchers have more control over than runs scored. Yeah. And then they put they put them on the same uh, scale as ERA so that those of us who have grown up with ERA have a better uh innate sense of what's good and what's bad. And so uh, with Wainwright, you know, he's over half a run below his fielding independent stats. And so when you see him kind of penciled in as a number two starter at his age, it kind of makes me a little uneasy because, you know, I think if you're counting on him to be more than a number three in the 2022 season, you're probably going to be disappointed. Um, and, and that even presupposes that he's healthy. Yeah. And so, well, th- th- you know, that said, I think one thing about the planning out, you know, seven, eight starting pitchers is there's less pressure on the idea of we have a number one, we have a number two, you know what I mean? Because yeah. hopefully if you're doing that the right way, frankly, if you're doing it the way the Dodgers do it, you're, um, you know, you're getting guys rest. And, you know, if you go back and you, you look at, you know, Clayton Kershaw has not thrown 200 innings like ever, um, you know, uh, you know, even when he's been kind of healthy for a full season, you know, they kind of, they get their guys rest. They don't use them all the time. And so hopefully they could be kind of smart about it. So they wouldn't necessarily, you know, have to lean on a Wainwright or have an expectation of Wainwright to get the, you know, to, to perform like a, you know, I'm making quotation marks here, number two. Yeah, um, and I agree with that to a large extent. Of course, the Dodgers also have the luxury of having about, what, yes. three, three, four, number two or better yeah. <laughs> pitchers yes. in a given year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they're spreading those innings out 
and you know probably getting as a share of their overall starting innings about what you would expect from that quality of pitcher just from more guys because they have that many uh, good or great pitchers. Yes. Um, but but with the Cardinals, and I think Flaherty going down, and Mosellock and Gersh, uh, they did a Q&A with Katie Wu at The Athletic. Mosellock has been making the rounds with the media uh, quite a bit and has been very clear in recognizing what all of us know, and that's you know injuries hurt this team, in particular injuries to the pitching staff. And the injuries of the pitching staff uh, led them to believe or led them to recognize that they had less pitching depth than they thought they had coming into the season. Mm-hmm. And I think the Flaherty uh, injury, and we talked about it at the time, that he was the player the team could probably least afford to lose because they had no way of replacing his innings. Right. And right now, it looks like they're going to be in the same position next year. And I'm not saying necessarily that you go out and you sign a Max Scherzer, but I think what this Cardinals team needs to do is they need, if possible, to get more elite innings out of the rotation. And whether that's Max Scherzer or my preference, a a Marcus Stroman, um, you know, I, I think that's the part of the free agent pool that they should be in until the very end, uh, until they hit their puke point and it's too rich for DeWitt's blood, and then they can tell us how they finish second uh, throughout the next year. But I really hope that they're staying in uh, on the, the elite free agent arms because we don't know what to expect from Flaherty next year after his injuries. Yep. And if he has more injury troubles they need to have pitchers who can help reduce the stress of losing Flaherty uh, in order for this team to be competitive. And, uh, and so I hope, I hope the Cardinals are targeting some of those higher end uh, elite pitchers to help round out their rotation. Well, and you, you and I are on the same page. I think Marcus Stroman should be, the the Cardinals number one target um, and, and and I guess by that I mean I knowing the way the Cardinals operate <laughs> you know and again we kind of talked earlier when we talked about you know thinking about who the Cardinals might get as a manager um, you know and I see you know folks think oh gosh maybe they'll get Max Scherzer or something like that I just see that as very very unlikely I don't think that's the kind of move that the Cardinals would make you know, I don't think the Cardinals are very likely to sign Justin Verlander, who, you know, I think is probably going to sign a, you know, a, a one year or a two year deal somewhere with a, you know, 35 million, you know, annual value, uh, you know, average annual value kind of thing to it. I, th- that's not a move I see them doing, uh, you know, either. Just some of those guys, and those are great pitchers. Those are exciting pitchers. I don't think that's the move the Cardinals go after. To me, the top of the market Cardinals guy from a pitching standpoint is Marcus Stroman, who's uh, a guy who's not uh, not a big strikeout guy at all. Um, less than eight strikeouts per nine last season, and guess what? <laughs> that pushes his price tag down. So now we're talking. Now we're talking Dewitt's language right here, folks. Okay, um, but he's a guy 
that um, uh, gets a lot of ground balls, though his ground balls uh, uh, have been going down a little bit of late. But, um, you know, but but still, uh, you know, good ground ball pitcher, just a guy who, you know, pitches well to, uh, you know, to contact, doesn't walk too many guys, um, you know, and, and just has has been solid um, guy who's really pitched, uh, been healthy, never really had, you know, major arm injuries, you know, consistently, you know, pitched a lot of innings. Uh, you know, I mean, everything I'm saying sounds like a Cardinals pitcher, doesn't it, Ben? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. And, you know, you put a, a pitcher with his profile um, in front of the Cardinals defense at Bush Stadium for his home games. Um, and I think there's reason to believe, you know, he's a low three ERA guy for the next couple of seasons. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe and and some of those. In some of those interviews that Mo and Gersh have been doing, they've they've kind of reiterated that idea of, you know, pitchers who take advantage of their elite defense. So, you know, they're they're really kind of forecasting this kind of acquisition as well. So um, I think the high end acquisition for them is a Marcus Stroman. And, and honestly, I don't know if they'll get him because Marcus Stroman is near the top of this free agent class as well. So. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody pays Marcus Stroman more than the Cardinals are, are willing to. Um, but I certainly hope they get him. Um, and I, frankly, I just like Marcus Stroman as a player and a personality as well. I think he'd be a great addition. Um, yes. The team. Um, he already liked at least one tweet um, kind of uh, linking him to the Cardinals as well. So I always like that. Um, <laughs> uh uh, one other guy um, who I uh, had seen, uh, I think there was a Heyman report mentioning was uh, uh, Nick Martinez, um, who is a, uh, an ex-Rangers uh, jobber who has been pitching in Japan for three, four years um, to fairly middling success. But then this last season was uh, really pretty elite numbers in Japan, ERA under two. He's a guy who's coming back. So... Um, if you guys uh, have, have seen the Miles Michaelis movie, this is kind of like the Miles Michaelis movie 2.0, I think. Um, I don't know a lot about Nick Martinez beyond that. I certainly don't remember him when he was a, a jobber pitcher for the Texas Rangers. But um, yeah, again, you know, Heyman's reported specifically that, that the Cardinals were a team that was sort of in on him. And I got to say, that sounds like the kind of guy that the Cardinals would absolutely go after. Um Ben, are there other guys that are out there that you um, either are, are would be interested in or feel like the Cardinals might be pursuing? Well, uh, first I'll offer the caveat that we discussed before the trade deadline. The Cardinals are going to be contacting agents for like every free agent pitcher. Yeah. Um, almost every team will do that. So when you hear the Cardinals are interested in or the Cardinals have been in touch with, you know, you need to recognize, number one, the Cardinals hardly ever leak that type of information. So it's almost certainly coming from agents who have an interest in making their clients seem popular with front offices and having teams be interested in them. And so uh, when you're consuming rumors and gossip 
this offseason. Keep that in mind. Uh, the Cardinals are contacting almost every pitcher's agent, and they should be. And if they weren't, people should be fired. Um, now, that being said, uh, there was a report that the Cardinals have interest in uh, Stephen Matz, who was with the Blue Jays and the Mets before. Uh, and he is someone who fits the description that you just said uh, of a pitcher who would use the defense uh, to a T. He had a good season last year with the Blue Jays after a very bad uh, 2020. Uh, 2020 seasons I don't really care about. More and more people refer to them like they were a real season as opposed to 60-ish games. Um, but, you know, he if you are someone who is a pitcher who is more inclined to use a defense, you're also more susceptible to that type of a blow-up. Uh, especially over a handful of starts in a 60-game season. Um, But he's a pitcher where, you know, if you strike out on Stroman, like like Matt's is not as consistent as Stroman, uh, but he's kind of Stroman light in a way. I agree. Um, I agree. Matt's is is like store brand Stroman, 100%. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Thunder. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, which we will call him now if the Cardinals sign him. Um, but, was, but, was, do, was Dr. Thunder the Dr. Pepper at, uh, at was yeah. that Hy-Vee? Okay. I don't yeah. think it was Hy-Vee. I think that might have been Walmart and Sam's oh. Club was oh, okay. Dr. Thunder. Because Hy-Vee, um, the one I remember at Hy-Vee was their Mountain Dew they called Hillbilly Holler, which was like yes. the, the first named store brand thing I ever remember seeing that wasn't just like a generic name. And I was like, that's an incredible name for that generic product. Like that's a better name for that product than Mountain Dew is. So um, props out to whoever the Hy-Vee ad person in like 1990 was that came out with Hillbilly Holler. So, uh, But, you know, the... the uh... Well, that's absolutely right. Maybe we should call Matt's hillbilly holler, but that seems like it I might agree. be offensive. Doctor <laughs> Thunder is a is a much better <laughs> like that's it almost true. has a professional wrestler quality to it. Yeah, um, I agree. You know. I agree, but I don't know his personality real well, so we'll have to see which way he breaks. Does he break Doctor Thunder? Or does he break hillbilly holler? So, uh, but Strowman and Matt's, I think. Uh, really give you an idea of the the flavor of the type of pitcher that they're going after. Well, and Stroman um, and Matt's both fit into that kind of, if they're going to plug into that number three spot you mentioned. Now, Stroman plugs a little higher. Stroman plugs more, yeah. much more like a number two, which is why, you know, you hope you'd shoot for him. But, um, but yeah, you know, anyway, they're in that vicinity of that kind of, uh, definitely you're upgrading um, if you're getting one of those guys. Martinez, who I mentioned, is is more of like in your kind of number seven ish type thing. But you never, but you know, some of these guys that have come over from Japan and the Cardinals have had a lot of success with them. You know, though, you know, um, some of those guys they come in as back end type guys, but have been fairly solid. So, and they're also guys uh, when you get a pitcher from. Uh, one of the Asian leagues, you always kind of have to worry about their ability to uh, integrate into the five-man rotation and the innings pitch workload um, after 
after working uh, in the Japanese league or the Korean league, for example, whereas a Mats or a Stroman, you know, you can, you can count on them for like 150 to 180 innings. And, and that has real value uh, as the Cardinals showed this last year, that has real value uh, for all major league teams, but especially for them uh, as they attempt to kind of bolster the rotation uh, and make a run for the NL Central Championship uh, in 2022. Well, and in terms of other potential guys, they they might be going after. And again, the universe of possibilities is is everybody. But um, I do think it's worth mentioning that I think there is a possibility of a reunion with one of those those guys who they had success with late last season. So John Lester, Wade LeBlanc, Jay Happ. The further we get from last season and the more we hear about the way they want the rotation to operate, I feel like the Lester thing is less likely because Lester just seems like an old school guy who wants to be, you know, one of the pillars of a five man rotation. And that that does not seem like what they're building here. So I I feel like maybe he's a little bit less likely. But that said, the Cardinals like um, they like to bring back guys that they know and that have been successful. So I think if any of those guys is interested in coming back at a number that the Cardinals feel comfortable with, I wouldn't be surprised to see them re-sign any of those guys. I also would not be surprised to see them sign. And and (laughs) here in my notes, I have some other jobber written down. And, um, you know, there's guys out there like Brett Anderson was a name that I saw. And you know how I landed on Brett Anderson, Ben? I looked at free agent pitchers and I thought, who's kind of old and bad now, but used to be sort of good? Um, (laughs) Thinking like, who else could fit into that John Lester, Wade LeBlanc, J.A. Happ type mold? Oh, Brett Anderson's kind of like that. Um, You know, I have no idea about Brett Anderson specifically, but... That, you know, there, but he's exactly like those other three guys, you know, and I think they could certainly go and they obviously, there was a formula they utilized last season that was fairly successful for them. And I think they feel pretty proud of themselves for the way they, that worked. And whatever that formula was, I wouldn't be surprised to see them apply it again. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them bring in a Brett Anderson type and try to do the same kind of thing. No, that that is a name that uh, feels like, you know, if Stroman is Dr. Pepper and Matt's is Dr. <laughs> Thunder, uh, <laughs> Brett Anderson is uh, whatever the generic knockoff of Dr. Thunder is. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't shop at Dollar Tree, but if somebody does, let us know what Dollar Tree's. Uh, I don't know where. Like we maybe chiropractor lightning or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, we're definitely, we're definitely down at a number seven or lower starter. I think when we're talking about Brett Anderson. So, um, and it would not surprise me if Wade LeBlanc is is healthy. Um, to mm-hmm. see him sign to a spring training invite to be yeah. that that spot behind Woodford um, because they brought him in. He did what they told him to do yeah. uh, and was very, you know, he. I, I really appreciated him because he recognized where he was in his career yes. <laughs> and, yes. and what was going on. 
and he seemed like very much a team player and very pliable to what the team thought he needed to do to be successful. And he was also very clearly uh, disappointed and frustrated with his injury Um, because I think he knew, you know, this is my audition for my next job um, and I'm having success right now and the team's having success uh, a little bit starting to turn it around. And uh, he was, he was clearly very frustrated and disappointed with the way his season came to an end. And so, you know, there is a part of me that, that wants them uh, maybe to bring Wade LeBlanc back as that seven or eighth starter uh, going into spring training. Yeah, well, and as opposed to Lester and Hat, both, who I think both have only ever been starters, LeBlanc did serve in that kind of swing role uh, in Baltimore. So, yeah, he has shown that willingness to say, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of do this. You know, Lester and Hap have been kind of starter for life type guys who, yeah, might just say, you know, if I'm not going to be a starter, I'm done kind of thing. Um, I guess I should mention, too, I, in a, a Gould piece, Gould did specifically mention Alex Webb and uh, Yusei Kikuchi as well. Um, he kind of mentioned them in a way it wasn't entirely clear if they were – he got the impression they were names he has heard someone mention in the organization as well. So, And, and again, I think those are two names I would probably slot them in in that kind of Stephen Matz sort of tier there. Um, you know, those are guys with, with uh, you know, d- you know, decent guys, guys with some upside, but, um, you know, some some issues as well. Um, kind of similar guys there. Um, anything else on the, the pitching side you wanted to hit on or should we talk about middle infield? Well, uh, we've talked about all of this and we have not talked about Alex Reyes or Jordan Hicks. That's um, true. What, That's true. what are your thoughts on their prospects as starters next year i think there's zero chance that either of them are starters next year i'm just not a believer in in either one and i i feel very negative saying that and i i don't i mean i i I wish them both the best they're both you know relatively young guys and hicks in particular you know i just you know the injuries have really kind of piled up for him And, and hicks I guess I'm, I'm more enthusiastic about Hicks still finding a way to be, um, you know, hopefully to be effective. But um, uh, I guess, you know, starting with Reyes, I, I mean, I'm just out on Alex Reyes really as, a, as, a, as an effective major league pitcher. I just don't see it anymore. Um, I didn't see it in the, uh, in the bullpen. And the idea that, you know, he was not effective in the bullpen and then you're going to have him – throw more innings for you. Um, Just, I I don't see it at all. And, um, you know, Hicks, I like, I I guess with Hicks, I like the idea of for health reasons that if they feel like putting him on a more regular schedule is going to help him. And and I really hope it does. It was really disappointing to see, you know, in the attempts to do that in the Arizona fall league, basically, you know, just, uh, you know, he kind of immediately went back to, you know, injury and, I'm just wondering if he's just not going to be able to overcome where he's at injury wise. So those are my thoughts. What are your thoughts on those two guys? Um, I think I have been maybe uh, one of the more vocal critics of Alex Reyes. And, you know, I, I think it's, 
a product of following so many prospects and trying to talk yourself into, hey, if this guy just finds some control, he could be really good. And the vast majority of guys who have control and command issues like Alex Reyes just don't pan out as very good major league pitchers. And Reyes, if you look at his strikeouts, walks, and home runs allowed, is a below average uh, major league pitcher as a reliever. And so I just don't see a way for him to be a successful starter either. I just don't think the commander control is there. Um, I think he is much more likely to be a guy who pitches when the team is behind in the sixth inning. Yeah. Um, because he's a slightly below average righty and that's what slightly below average righty relievers do is they pitch in the middle innings when your team is behind. Um, and so I think that's what Reyes is probably going to do. Um, I would once again, like to voice my frustration with the front office, not trading Alex Reyes last year at the trade deadline when his value was at its highest and they maybe could have got something, but probably not because other front offices know what Alex Reyes's deal is and why would they acquire him? Well, Um, you know, that's like, I see people right now talking about like, uh, uh, you know, them trading Paul DeYoung, for example. And, you know, and some of the comments that Moe's made about, you know, kind of, you know, sticking up for Paul DeYoung's season last year and, you know, how well he's battling a rib issue and all this. And I've seen some people say like, well, he might just be, he's talking him up so that they can trade him and stuff. It's like, you know, the other GMs have fan graphs. Like, (laughs) they have more than fan graphs. Yeah, exactly. I'm just saying, like, I think that it's the idea that you can, just you know, I, I I think it's harder than it ever was to you know offload guys for you know what I mean. Like I think everybody's yeah. pretty savvy. So uh, and Hicks, you know, there's and I've been trying uh, to remember who said this, and I think it might have been Joe Sheehan. And it was it, I'm paraphrasing it, and I'm not going to do his analysis justice, but it was along the lines of uh, what we have learned from the velocity boom in major league baseball is that the human body breaks down when it starts throwing 102 miles an hour or more with regularity. And, you know, basically you can touch a hundred, 101, you know, you can sit 99, a hundred and you might be able, you know, to, to stay healthy and, and compete in the major leagues. But when you get up into that, you know, I'm hitting 102 with frequency, it's almost a death sentence in terms of going to the injured list. You know, and you've seen it with DeGrom, you've seen it with Hicks. And, you know, with Hicks, you have the, the factor of his diabetes, and I don't know how that plays into his recovery, uh, either from pitching during the course of the season or when it comes to bouncing back from this injury. Um, but I do worry with, with all of that, uh, that, you know, he's got an uphill road to climb in terms of getting back healthy. But even if he does get back healthy, Ben, I, you know, yeah, he's out there throwing a hundred miles an hour, 
but he just doesn't get many swings and misses with that pitch, and he sure seems to get a lot of hard contact with it. And yeah. and his slider, it, it showed some improvement before he got hurt, um, which was heartening to see. Yeah. And I, I hope we can we continue to see a breaking ball with that type of bite uh, and maybe better. But that's the other thing is, you know, his secondary stuff has not been great, though he did show some improvement with it. Right. But and, that said, his his, you know, power sinker, you know, he did get a lot of ground balls. Um, yeah. You know, he didn't get strikeouts, but he got a lot of ground balls. And so. I, you know, I can, the version I can imagine of, of Hicks where he still throws, you know, very hard, like upper nineties, uh, you know, an upper nineties power sinker that just gets beat into the ground to the Cardinals defense. That guy as a starting pitcher is, you know, is enticing. I could see why they would pursue, you know, that guy. And, and, and Hicks does have, physical abilities that I, I definitely, I, you know, um, you know, I'm glad they're doing whatever they can to make something of him. It's just disappointing. I'm, I'm just, I'm worried that he's a, a career that's maybe going to be lost to injury. And it's, it's just one of those things that happens and it's, it's, it's sad when it happens. Um, and, and I hope that's not where we end up, but it's kind of, you know, it's, it's looking more and more like that could be where he's going. Um, we've been going a, a good while here, but I do, I do want to touch on, you know, middle infield is kind of the one other place where there's talk that, you know, there could be an acquisition. It's really the one other, you know, hole or kind of obvious place where the team could upgrade outside of some kind of a trade that would, you know, shuffle things. But I just, it, that doesn't seem very likely. Um, do you see them doing anything over in the middle infield or, or just on the kind of position player side in general? Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they get... Uh, someone who can play second base and third base, like an Escobar who can hit left-handed well. Mm -hmm. Um, And that gives them the flexibility of, then they've got Sosa de Young, Edmund, but they can spell uh, any number, you know, they can spell Arenado and then they can also, you know, plug in that left-handed bat at second base and kind of try to leverage that platoon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that would be the thing that would be most likely in my mind. Um, I They need to get more left-handed, and I think the easiest way to do that is signing an infielder uh, who, who hits uh, left-handed uh, and can you know, split time with Edmund. And then you can also get that person at bats when Arenado needs a break or Goldschmidt needs a break. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And, you know, there was a point where I really thought they might go after a, a shortstop or, or a second baseman, go after a, a, a middle infielder, you know, and possibly even somebody um, kind of at the, the top of this market. And there's a lot of big names out there. I know you and I, you know, were really excited about possibly the idea of a, of Corey Seager, who of course is left-handed. You know, he would be the, you know, the the biggest upgrade for him there. Um, I don't see him going after any of these guys. For one thing, uh, Corey Seager, Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, Marcus Simeon, and Chris Taylor 
were all extended qualifying offers. And if we want to talk about things that the Cardinals do not do, um, signing guys with qualifying offers attached is something that they have literally never done. And uh, when you keep in mind that when you sign a guy with a qualifying offer, you have to give up a draft pick. Um, I think that, uh, um, you know, I think that uh, I, I'm trying to think of what Bill DeWitt would do before he would give up a draft pick. And I'm, I'm almost at a loss. I just I don't think that's something they would ever do. <laughs> no, um, unless the CBA changes, of course, and, and those rules uh, get tweaked. But. You know, that is very unlikely. The other thing is, is, is they're going to be paying uh, $30 million plus to two infielders uh, for the next few years. Yes. And so you, you can structure a contract in such a way that, you know, you, you're not going to pay the shortstop. For ex- like, let's say they did it to Correa or Seager. We're not going to pay you $30 million until after Goldschmidt's off the books, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe with Seeger, the idea is, hey, we're going to sign you to be our shortstop for until Goldschmidt's gone, and then we're going to move you to first base. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. there there are things they could do, but it just seems unlikely that they're going to put, you know, that much money into the infield. Um, yeah when they have a proven formula of uh, kind of quality defense making their pitching better than what they're paying their pitching to be. <laughs> yeah. And so, I, you know, and with Seager in particular, he would not fit in with their formula or their overall philosophy of we're just going to catch everything that is in play. Right. Um, yeah. And with our ballpark, that's a lot uh, that doesn't land over the fence. And so, uh, you know, the more that I think about it, uh, you know, if you're going to make a play for someone, it's Correa fits in because he hits right handed pitching well and is an elite defender. He also happens to be probably a thirty five million dollar a year player. Exactly. And so it just. And the Yankees probably want to sign him, and the Astros are r- reportedly still talking to him. Yeah, I and mean, so I, think, I think Correa gets the biggest deal on this list. Yes. Um, I, yes. He's the youngest as well, so. Yes. Yeah. So he's, he's the one where it's like, well, yeah, we would love to have him, but he's going to be so highly coveted that it just it's very unlikely the Cardinals get into the bidding at that level. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I um, I kind of uh, was interested in Marcus Simeon as well. Marcus Simeon um, hits hits guys uh, you know on both sides as well. Can play second and short. He was a, someone who I I you know would have had some interest in, um, but again with the qualifying offer in particular, I think he's kind of priced out. He's a little bit older too, so he's somebody who I thought you know it could be a shorter deal. Maybe that would make some sense. I see so many Cardinals fans in love with Trevor story. I, I am completely uninterested in Trevor story. And I think the Cardinals are as well. His, his uh, offensive numbers have declined each of the last three seasons. He has serious arm issues that um, he has a difficulty making the throws from shortstop. So defensively, he's a real question mark. Um, His numbers away from Coors field are quite bad. I mean, I like, I, I, I'm not sure that 
Trevor Story is even a league average player. Um, I'm perfectly honest. So I just, I do not see that move happening. Um, I'm, I'm way out on him. So yeah, I, I don't know who it is, but I would love to see someone acquired here. And I agree with you, a left-handed bat, because really the only thing they're going to add to this mix is Nolan Gorman, who I think, you know, we, we expect maybe not immediately um, on opening day, but I think very early we expect to, you know, get a shot, um, you know, kind of in the mix there. And yes, that's a left-handed bat, but you know, that's a very young rookie. So as promising as he is, uh, you know, there's a very good chance that uh, it, it doesn't click for him next year. And then you still don't have that there. So it, yeah, it would be great to see some kind of a veteran, you know, piece brought into the mix, someone who could ideally play both second and short and hit left-handed. I think that's almost a necessity. I'd also love to see, and again, this is something that I know Kyle has, has suggested, uh, you know, why don't they play Edmund at short, at least some, and and suggested that Edmund's defense at short in the minors was very good. And of course, I mean, he just won a gold glove for his defense at second. You and I are fairly down on Edmund, but again, I like I'm down on Edmund as an everyday second baseman, but I think Edmund as a sort of super sub is actually a pretty valuable piece. And so, you know, Edmund, and, and I would also add to that, that if Tommy Edmund is playing shortstop, that the added and he's playing it with plus defense that bumps his value up considerably as well. So I'm not saying I want to see him as an everyday shortstop either, but if he can, you know, if he can be sort of in that super sub role and he's playing, you know, seeing time at both of your middle infield spots, I think that really improves the value you're getting out of that kind of matrix of players there as well. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I, I think with Gorman and Yepes, the Cardinals are hoping. I think for the DH. Um, yes, and I and I think they're going to use Yepes and Gorman, and then you know the the regulars uh, from last year to kind of get as much as they can out of everyone mixing and matching. And and that includes Sosa, uh, Edmund and DeYoung. And it would not surprise me if at some point in time, we start seeing, you know, a Gorman Edmund middle infield with Gorman at second. Uh, after all baseball America quoted Jose Akendo saying Gorman will be an above average second baseman. And with his power, uh, you know, if, if he's above average defensively at second base, I mean, it's real hard, in my opinion, to justify playing Tommy Edmund too terribly much. I mean, he... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if 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 Gorman shows up and, and Gorman's power shows up, I mean, I, I think we the expectation is that Nolan Gorman is going to be an everyday player at, at some point in time, but... But, you know, he's he's very young and this is his first crack at the majors. So it may not be this season that that happens. Um, yeah. So, you know, they've got to be prepared for that for sure. Um, well, Ben, we've gone on a ways here. Is there anything else or should we uh, move on to what we're going to be looking for? Uh, no, I think that about wraps everything up. Um, you know, it, it is shaping up to be a very exciting offseason um, and uh and so I, I'm hoping that we get some excitement here in the next few weeks. 
Yeah. Are, so is there anything specific you're going to be watching for here in the month of November? I think the next time we're uh, playing a record is going to be in December, which will uh, either be when the winter meetings happen or uh, when the uh, lockout begins. Well, I was about ready to say that's going to be our lockout episode. I mean, you know, this evening, right before we started recording, it was leaked that the owners proposed doing away with arbitration and just having uh, player compensation tied to fan graphs wins above replacement. Um, and I'm someone, you know, I love fan graphs. I use and reference wins above replacement. The idea that it should just be the end all be all of player compensation is one of the most idiotic ideas I've ever heard. It just suggests to me that the owners aren't even really that serious about reaching an agreement and makes me very pessimistic uh, that they will not lock out the players here in about three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, well, uh, I mean, we've got, um, yeah, just a few weeks here. I, what I'm, what's going to be interesting to me and, and this was, um, gosh, and it, whether it was Katie Wu or Gould or, or one of the Cardinals reporters suggested that the, the Cardinals were perhaps going to, um, you know, try to be aggressive here in this three week window. Um, and, and I think that's just one of the interesting dynamics with this off season here is, you know, we, we are in free agency right now. So, you know, you know, teams could sign, uh, you know, players and, uh, but we also have this, uh, looming, uh, you know, end of the CBA and this potential lockout, which most people expect is going to happen. And of course that throws everything up in the air. And so, uh, you know, there's just a lot of questions. I, I think there's a good chance that we see almost nothing happen yet in November. But, you know, does a team and, and for our purposes, do the Cardinals, you know, get aggressive? Are there certain kinds of moves that they that they make? Because, of course, depending on how things break with, you know, the CBA and everything, it could be to your advantage to, you know, to act early. So th that's what I'm just going to be watching for is, is our, what kind of players, you know, get signed. Um, by anybody, and then uh, specifically, of course, is there any way that the you know the Cardinals are are active? Um, I mean, I guess that's all what we'll all be watching for. But it'll just be interesting to see if we see anything happen before that uh, you know potential lockout happens if we don't get a new CBA. Um, ben, anything else before we uh, we wrap this one up? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I think it, there's so much going on, uh, in baseball during this hot stove, uh, that I'm hoping that the owners don't decide to prioritize sticking it to the players union, uh, over the good of the game. But I, I fear that's where we're headed. So hopefully, uh, the lockout and the collective bargaining agreement issues get resolved, uh, before spring training, but uh, right now I am very pessimistic that they're going to get resolved before uh, the beginning of December, let alone uh, the beginning of the 2022 calendar year. So uh, if, if that interests you, uh, the Athletic Baseball Podcast uh, did a, a good scene setter uh, for the current state of labor relations in Major League Baseball. That episode came out uh, this week and uh, 
you know, we hadn't discussed doing recommendations, but given just the way the conversation has flowed, if, uh, if that is something that interests you, I encourage uh, you to, to give that athletic podcast a listen because it, it's a pretty informative uh, and interesting one. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, I haven't listened to that podcast, but um, I have been um, reading other pieces on The Athletic. I think really in terms of the labor situation, all of the best stuff I've seen has been reported there. Um, and I think just kind of the um, uh, the blow by blows um, that uh, Evan Drellich and Ken Rosenthal particularly are doing on um, the labor situation there have been great both kind of with updates on, on what, what is and isn't happening as well as, yeah, laying some of that groundwork for, Hey, what happens, you know, when this doesn't happen and what are the steps forward? So, um, uh, again, we're not an official athletic podcast, but, uh, I definitely, uh, Ben and I are both subscribers and, and a good read there. So, um, so that's going to wrap it up for us today. Um, we will be with you periodically here through the off season, uh, but you can always reach us. Uh, the Twitter handle is at Cardinals off day. You can email us, uh, Cardinals off day at substack.com. Um, any feedback you guys have any questions anything you guys would like us to talk about uh, we always really appreciate hearing from you guys so uh, with that we'll wrap things up until the next cardinals off day <laughs>